morning. Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. This morning's sermon is the first in a series of six messages which falls under the topic of characters around the cradle. And the character we're looking at in this morning's passage is Caesar Augustus. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. It is his inerrant, infallible, and inspired word. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word, which has been read. We thank you for the promise that when you send it forth, like rain, it brings forth a a produce, a harvest, but not of the plant variety, but of the human variety, that your word is powerful to bring forth life and growth in our lives. So, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth as I explain your word as the preacher, and as each one of us hear and reflect and seek to apply it in our lives, I pray that you would, you would do that mighty work again this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. During the holidays, families spend more time together than they normally do, and along with that, close proximity brings, often brings interesting challenges. Family members who are separated by a distance see each other for the first time in a long while, and quirky habits or obnoxious habits can come forth. You may find yourself confronted with yours or other people's hurts, fears, or resentments from the past. Because of this, it's a good time of year, I think, to reflect on the question, why did God give me this family? Why am I in the family that I'm in? My dad once told me, son, you get to choose your spouse. You don't get to choose your family, so choose well. The fact is that besides your husband or wife, if you're married, none of your other family members are chosen by you. They are assigned to you. So why do you think God gave you the family that he did? I think too often our problem is that we complain and worry and allow ourselves to fret and to be frustrated by family members or friends in our lives. Some of you may be wondering, what could the Lord have been thinking changed me in this family? 
I'm told that in certain art exhibits, the way that you actually arrange the pieces in the room takes on some importance. Whether the sculpture goes here and the painting goes there or, or vice versa. Which paintings are hanging next to each other even. Think about a living room, the way that the furniture is positioned around the room says a lot. If your life is a living room, and if people are the furniture, what are the pieces of furniture that God has sovereignly and in his plan, perhaps mysteriously, arranged in your life? Why are they arranged that way? The likelihood is that you didn't pick many, if any, of these pieces. We're asking the question this Christmas season over the next several weeks, who are the characters around the cradle? Who did God into the story of his only begotten son. This is the father, the sovereign God. How did he bring his story about? How did he introduce his son into the world? And as I mentioned already, we're going to look this morning at a character around the cradle who in all likelihood never actually met Jesus. In fact, this morning's character probably never even heard of the Lord Jesus. Yet, as I hope to show you, Caesar Augustus was a very important character around the cradle, not physically, but in the background, even though he never met or even heard of Jesus in his life. And this, I believe, is due to God's amazing plan. I'd like you to consider three reasons why Caesar was placed as a character around the cradle. First, I think he's linked to the birth of our Lord to show that Jesus' birth is a fact of history. And we'll see that in our passage in just a few moments by the striking detail in which Caesar's uh, presence is recorded. I also think, secondly, that Caesar is linked to Jesus' birth to show that God has begun the earthly life of our Lord with tremendous care and wisdom. Nothing was left to chance. And because he is the beloved son of the Father, Everything about his birth as a human being was done with great wisdom and great care. And finally, third, I believe Caesar Augustus is linked to Jesus' birth for the purpose of making a radical contrast between the greatest king of the world at that time and the greatest king of the world for all time. So let's look at these three reasons together this morning. First of all, Caesar is an important character around the cradle because this shows that, that Jesus was a, was a real historical figure and that his birth is a fact of history. Luke tells the story, beginning in Luke 2, with Caesar's reign in the background to emphasize that Jesus' birth really and truly happened. Look at the text. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered That's verse 1. And then verse 2, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. I practiced pronouncing that word, by the way. Quirinius. So these things happened. If you were to write a fictional tale, you wouldn't necessarily want people to check the, 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 the factuality of it to actual things that happened in space and time. You you try to blur those things, but Luke seems to be intent here and in the beginning of his gospel to sharpen, to highlight, to 
to underscore with specificity, with dates and times, exactly what was going on at that time so that someone who was reading this in the first century easily could have checked. In fact, Justin, one of the first Christian apologists in the second century, so somewhere around the mid-100s, in defending the Christian faith said, you can go check about Quirinius' census yourself. He said that within 100 years of Jesus' departure from this world. But in spite of the fact that Luke insists that he's writing history, and I'd encourage you here to reread Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, to get an idea of how Luke views himself as a historian. In spite of the fact that, that he's doing this, not everyone except Luke's account. Many bluntly say that Luke flat out got it wrong. Why do people say this? Well, there are many things for discussion on this point, and some of them aren't appropriate for a sermon, but I'm going to give you a couple of things that I've heard say and that scholars will say that are problems with the history or the factuality of our text. First of all, outside of Luke's gospel, there is no record of this census. So as scholars have combed the ancient sources of record-keeping and Romans love to write things down. We don't find this census recorded. We can't find a copy of it. That's one problem that has been observed. The other one is that this lesser ruler, this regional ruler named Quirinius, who is, who is ruling in Syria, was not known to be the legate in Syria at the time that Luke says the census took place, which was around the time that Herod the Great was about to die, 5-4 BC, something like that. We know that he was the legate in Syria, the, the Roman ruler in Syria, about 10 years later, but not at this time. In response to these factual historical concerns, I believe it's important to note that, firstly, while there's no surviving record of a census of this sort outside of Luke's gospel, there are dozens of censuses that are recorded, some we know about, some we don't, some in detail, some in generalities, and there's absolutely nothing out of character with this census from the many Roman censuses that took place under Caesar Augustus, starting in 31 BC when he became Caesar, all the way to his death in 14 AD. In fact, the time that this census takes place fits a pattern of Roman census taking so that there could well have been a census being taken at this time according to the number of years in which they take censuses in our country that every 10 years in Rome it tended to be every 14 years. So while it's somewhat problematic for historians to say this is the only source. There are plenty of things where we take the only source as at least a credible indication that the thing wasn't actually false. The other thing I would observe is that while Quirinius was not the official Roman legate in Syria until 5 or 6 AD, other historical sources do place Quirinius in Syria as a ruler at the time that this census was taken. He may have been a co-ruler with, with another Roman official or a subordinate, a secondary official. He had not yet ascended to 
that high place of responsibility. I'd like us to try an experiment in bias. Let's think about reading the story like a journalist would read it. You know, if you've taken a high school journalism course or if you've been to college and you've learned the, uh, the so-called five W's of, of journalism, you remember what they are? The who, the what, the where, the why, and so forth. Let's ask those questions of this story. Let's just see what the facts are here. Who are the characters in the story? Well, they're Augustus, which is Octavius, the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Quirinius, Joseph and Mary, and Jesus. That's the who. What about the what? What happens in the story? Well, Augustus is enrolling the entire world, which is the whole Roman Empire. And this empire included the region known as Syria-Palestine, which included the land of Israel. That's where this is taking place. Or that's what happens, rather. Where is it taking place? Well, in this region of Syria-Palestine, Joseph, who's residing in Nazareth, leaves that town and goes to his native town of his patrimony, which is Bethlehem, because he is of the house and lineage of David. In his hometown would be where the records are available that would be needed to substantiate who he is for the census. When does it take place? Well, as I mentioned, Caesar's reign, Augustus begins his reign in 31 BC, and it lasts 45 years. We know a lot about him. He, he wrote quite a bit, in fact. He, he recorded massive annals of all of his activities, or a, at least a, a subset of his activities that we have left to us. We know less about Quirinius. Based on Acts 5.37, he did preside over a census in this region around 567 AD. That's not the census that's being referred to here. Luke's account makes it clear that there was another census around 5 or 4 BC, as I said, around the time of the death of King Herod, in which Quirinius was involved, and his presence in the census was not as the prime Roman governor, but as a subordinate. So that's the who, the what, the where, and the when. What about why? This is the tough question for a journalist. This is where we have to really look and stare closely. Well, clearly for Luke, the why is to underscore that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And Caesar plays a role in bringing that all about, as we'll see in just a moment. All this took place, you might say, in order to fulfill prophecy. Since the Old Testament, Micah predicts that this would happen in this way. Which brings me to my second point. Caesar Augustus is linked to the birth of Jesus. He's a character around the cradle to show the wisdom of God in introducing his son into the world. God took very seriously all the details surrounding how his son would be born as a human being. Think about all that had to line up for this to take place. Joseph and Mary didn't choose to go to Bethlehem. They were forced, as it were, by Caesar's census, which, by the way, was his tax-raising program. Some things never change. 
The decree revolved around the taxation of those in the Roman Empire, and this required him knowing how many people were in the empire. And so each person in the empire would return to his or her hometown. In Joseph's case, this was Bethlehem. Joseph returns to Bethlehem because that's David's city. We read about this in the books of First and Second Samuel. It was David's ancestral home, and the prophets had predicted that the Messiah would be a son of David. And part of the way that you would know who the son of David was is that he would be born in David's city, Bethlehem. If the Messiah was born in Bethlehem, it would send a message to the world that this is the new king. And that those who would pay attention, that in this new king, a new age was dawning. In this boy, in this baby. As I mentioned, Micah had predicted this in a prophecy in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which reads, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old from ancient days. Do you think Caesar had any idea that he played a key role in fulfilling biblical prophecy? It's amazing how wise God is. I suspect if Caesar knew, like Herod knew, he'd do his best to try to frustrate that plan, but Caesar didn't. God was wise and careful and thorough to link the life of this great ruler, Caesar Augustus, with a, an obscure and backwater birth of a baby boy to Mary and Joseph. Every aspect of the Christmas story actually shows that God has worked his plan and his time for his purposes wisely and carefully for his glory. So Caesar Augustus is an important character around the cradle to show that Jesus' birth is linked to history. It happened in history. It's not a myth. It could have been verified by anyone reading Luke's gospel. He's also linked to show the wisdom and the love with which God introduced his son into the world. Finally, I believe that Caesar Augustus and Jesus' birth are linked in order to show a radical contrast the great Caesar, Augustus. The first Caesar in the Roman Empire, true Caesar. The kingdom of the world in Caesar and the kingdom of God in Jesus. Think of these contrasts. Caesar represents vast supplies, practically limitless, of visible wealth, silver, gold, jewels, and any conceivable earthly commodity or resource he had at his disposal. He would snap his fingers. He could have a, a wheelbarrow full of gold just brought in front of him just by raising an eyebrow. There was no no in his vocabulary. I'd uh, like 10 truckloads of silver. You don't say no to Caesar. You go get it. Anything he wanted was available to him. I'm calling his visible wealth. 
Jesus' kingdom represents wealth as well, an unimaginable wealth. But he would teach as a man that that treasure is in heaven and therefore received and appreciated and experienced by faith. Not just visible wealth, but human power. Caesar represents the pinnacle of human power and achievement. Anything is possible with Caesar. I just mentioned snapping your fingers. Uh, Guys, try that around the house. See how that works. But Caesar, you don't jump when he says jump. You're, You're probably done. Caesar had all the power in the world. People cringed in his presence. They came crawling on their faces. An illustration of Augustus's amazing power is the so-called Augustan Age of Literature. Under Caesar Augustus flourished one of the greatest periods of literary output in human history. Among other things, Virgil wrote his Aeneid at this time. And just to show you how much power Caesar Augustus had, he described the story of Rome as beginning with the fall of Troy and culminating in Caesar Augustus. He was the end of history or the beginning. People believed that with the advent of Caesar Augustus was an age of glad tidings, gospel, which was a word used by Romans in description of their emperor before it was used by Christians in description of our Savior. Many innovations and inventions flourished under his rule. Christ Jesus, even as a baby in Bethlehem, also represents power, but it's power of a different kind. It is power from God, power for God. It's divine power. Listen to how St. Peter describes this power in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Caesar Augustus can't touch that. It's altogether different kind of power. Visible wealth, human power, and third, the radical contrast can be seen in the kinds of peace that each of these kings bring. You know, under Caesar Augustus flourished something that the world hadn't known, if ever, certainly not for decades or centuries, the so-called Pax Romana, the Roman peace. In the decades leading up to Caesar Augustus's reign, there had been uh, racked internally with civil wars and strife and grasping for power and who would take over. Caesar Augustus was famous for his empire-wide peace, on the other hand. And this empire-wide peace began to thrive due to his um, careful administration and his own priorities. But even this great peace was destined to fail, but the peace of Christ, by contrast, is permanent and eternal. It is not earthly, but heavenly. The peace of Christ passes understanding. 
So we see then the radical contrast between these kingdoms. It isn't that Caesar didn't do anything good, but none of his achievements can, can compare to the birth, life, work, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the true Son of God. Commentator Tim Houston says, by recording the birth of Jesus against the background of Caesar Augustus's reign, it's as if Luke is saying there is an alternative way for people to find their aspirations fulfilled. There is an alternative leader to Caesar Augustus. I began my sermon this morning by asking a question about why God may have put you in the family that he did. I want to share with you something I've been thinking about recently. My own grandfather, Robert Henry Sr., was born in 1912. And his role in World War II was not to go overseas. He was too valuable for that. But he stayed stateside and manufactured custom parts for airplanes. In his whole life, he regretted that. He felt like he didn't do his duty. He didn't do his part because he didn't fight alongside the other boys. He was a machinist, a man of his hands. An error for Grandpa Henry was in the level of anything more than a 32nd of an inch. He worked in tiny, tiny, tiny fractions. He even had a hand in manufacturing parts for the various uh, space expeditions that happened in the 60s and the 70s, including his last project was helping with the first space shuttle. But he only had a high school education. He was also insecure about that his whole life. He was certainly smart enough to be a college educated or beyond. But to compensate for that, he constantly read scientific journals which even as a biology major, when I was in an undergraduate institution, I didn't understand some of the things that my grandfather was talking to me about. He was essentially a self-educated man. And perhaps because of all of his intelligence, he was, um, or perhaps it's related to it, perhaps not, he was a religious skeptic. And he spent his entire life searching for ways to undermine traditional Christianity. In fact, he was sending me books when I was 10 and 11 years old, critiquing Christianity. That may say something about me, too, because I was reading these books. Starting then and continuing all through my teenage years up until the time he died, he and I consistently argued and debated about whether Christianity was true. Why did God give me this man as my grandfather? Why was he a character in my life? I've got my own ideas, and maybe in telling the story, some of you have gleaned some ideas of your own. What about you? No matter how you approach this question, the characters that God has placed in your life Eventually, you need to come back to this. You will come back to this. You must come back to this. Some way, somehow, the family you were given was part of God's plan, his perfect plan to help you become the person he wants you to be. This morning, we've been looking at the first character around the cradle, and we'll look at five or six more as the Advent weeks approach Christmas and then a couple of weeks following Christmas. 
Caesar Augustus was, our, was the one we looked at this morning, and we considered three reasons God may have had in including him in the story of his beloved son's birth. As I wrap up this morning, I want to consider some ways that you can apply this morning's message to your life. One, I want to encourage you with this. God loves you. He has a plan for your life, and it includes the details. The Bible says that he even counts the number of hairs on your head. Now, for some of us, that job is a little easier than for others. But for all of us, no matter how much hair you have, he says not one of them can fall to the ground without your father's will. It also, in the similar passage, says, which one of you, by worrying, can turn your hair color? Now, I've wondered about that because I think my hair turns color because I'm worrying. But the point is that God is powerful and he loves you in the details. If God so wisely arranged the context or circumstances of the birth of his son in the world, what does this mean for you? The reason he was so careful about the details of the birth of his son is because he cares about you. And seeing the care that he uses in arranging the story of Jesus' birth, seeing that on the pages of Scripture, should teach you, show you, prove to you that he loves you and he cares for you. Listen to how the Apostle Paul explains this. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Jesus just didn't come for no reason. He was born for you. So seeing what God did around the birth of his son should be a comfort for you that God loves me. God is taking care of me. God hasn't forgotten me. He is not absent. He is present and actively arranging the circumstances of my life. This is the confidence that you can have in the details, and I want to mention this, even the difficult details. Now, God's not the author of sin. But in a mysterious way, he is so powerful that he is able to preside over the hardships and difficulties of your life to bring about blessing in your life. Every red light, every bad grade, every misunderstanding, every missed appointment, every late payment, every broken heart, every loss, every grief, every death. Through all of life, horrors and hardships, your heavenly Father has providentially worked out a plan that brings about your sanctification, your redemption, your healing. And he's done it in a way that brings you glory and honor and praise. My next application is related to the first. Because of God's wise and loving care for his son's entrance into the world, you should have peace. Remember I mentioned the Pax Romana. Well, in case you hadn't noticed, the Roman Empire sort of lost that. But Jesus' peace is greater than the peace of perhaps the greatest empire in the world. Certainly greater than the empire of our country. Even in the midst of your confusion and the chaos of life, you can trust that since God has a purpose for your life, that purpose includes for you to have peace. Knowing that God has a purpose for your life should lead you to live 
and to feel differently, to think differently about your circumstances. I want you to live a life which is given away to God and for others because you have a peace that passes understanding. It's a different kingdom. He's a different king, and it's a different peace. Here's what I've seen over the years in the lives of people whose faith I admire. Faithful God followers are at ease and have security despite the changing scenes and situations of their lives. They smile in the face of trouble. They keep their cool. They maintain a sense of humor. But more than that, they have a a sense of spiritual confidence that nothing and no one can shake. This was true of Joseph and Mary. Think of this. There is no record in Scripture about Mary or Joseph complaining on this arduous journey. They went willingly and obediently, humbly. They were poor. They clearly had plans to stay somewhere that didn't work out in some way, shape, or form. So they were homeless. She's pregnant. She's vulnerable. Perhaps they experienced rejection, but in spite of all this, they went. This is why you can have peace. This is why you don't need to worry. This is why you don't need to sweat the small stuff. God took care of his son, and he's going to take care of you because that's why his son came. Finally, your life is not ultimately about you, and I want you to remember this. Your life is not ultimately about you. The reason he's caring for your life in such details and the reason you can have peace It's not just so you feel better. Christianity is not a self-help program all about you and your needs. Yes, you can have peace, but it's a peace with a purpose. It's a peace that passes understanding, not just so you can keep cruising along and doing your thing. It's a peace that is, is enabling you to live for God. Your life isn't about you. Maybe that's why you're rejecting the peace that he's offering because you want to keep sort of Jesus and living my life for me. It's an either-or proposition. It's either his peace or no peace. And that's the frustration that some of you are facing. Christian or not Christian. The Christmas story proves that God's power, seen specifically in the providential details of the birth of his son, is an arrow aimed at defeating our understanding of how authority, control, and purpose works in the world. God's purpose is that the whole of the fallen, broken, sinful universe will be healed. And he's given you peace so that you can participate in that. So you can do your part, your little part, in bringing about healing and redemption in the world. Some of you might be wondering, if God's trying to heal the universe, he could, you sure could have fooled me. I certainly am not experiencing that healing. What about my shattered reality? I can't give you an easy answer to that. But evil is not from God. And his plan, as I've said, and his power is such that he can take that shattered reality and build something 
far more beautiful, as the apostle says, than you could possibly ask or imagine. You can't even, you don't even know what to ask according to the Bible. You're, you're, you're incapable of asking for what you need. Because your life and all of these things ultimately are not about you. So while I can't answer that for you because I'm not God, I do think you should ask yourself, since when does the creator of the universe have to explain everything to you? Mary's answer when she found out she was expecting the Messiah is a model for us all. And we'll learn more about Mary in the coming weeks. But she said, let it be done to your handmaiden according to your word. Because God's providence proves that he has a plan, and this should lead to such a serene and inner tranquility that believers gladly give themselves away for the work of God in the world. Your time, your things, your money should be seen by others as such an arresting and alternate reality to everything they know and understand. Too often, though, the opposite is the case. When others see us and how we're using our time and our money and our energy and our efforts, when they see how we're handling the shattered dreams that we all experience, Christian and non-Christian, too often, they're like, if that's Christianity, I want nothing to do with it. Caesar was not a character around the cradle that Joseph had planned on, neither was Herod for that matter, or a whole host of others, but he took them in the trials they introduced into his life with humble faith, and so should you. So this morning's sermon is your Christmas opportunity to repent, to repent of your idolatry, to repent of your control, your plans, your authority, your purpose, and to receive with humble gratitude what he is doing in your life, and to live that out and his purposes for you in a strikingly peaceful way. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for making Caesar a part of Jesus' story, your son, and our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for making us a part of your story as well. We too are, in our own ways, characters around the cradle. I hope, Lord, that what has been explained from the scriptures this morning will help us to more clearly understand and recognize what our calling really is. This I ask in the name of Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.